0: I try to make time for informal mentorship and formal mentorship, uh, because I think it's important to pay it forward. I also just think it's a it's it's really, it's fun. <laughs> you know? right,
1: right. I,
0: I enjoy chatting with people about about how they're they're looking at these issues. But being, I mean, honestly, having these conversations is also helpful to sharpen my
1: own thinking. This is the o feature cast, a special edition of Further Together, the O-R-A-U podcast. Join Michael Holtz for conversations with o experts on STEM workforce development, scientific and technical reviews, and the evaluation of radiation exposure and environmental contamination. You'll also hear from o research program participants and their mentors as they talk about their experiences and how they are helping shape the future of science. Welcome to the ORISE FeatureCast. Welcome to another episode of the ORISE FeatureCast. As always, I'm your host, Michael Holtz from the Communications and Marketing Department of ORISE and ORAU. I am genuinely excited to have as my guest today, Dr. Hilary Marston, who is the new Chief Medical Officer at the Food and Drug Administration and is a past ORISE participant. So, Dr. Marston, welcome so much to the ORISE feature cast. I'm thrilled to have you here. Well,
0: thank you so much for having me. I appreciate
1: it. So, you have a new role, pretty much a brand new role at this point mm-hmm. still, as the Chief Medical Officer for the Food and Drug Administration. Um, give me a little bit of your background. How How did you get there from where you started?
0: Sure. Uh, thank you so much. And I will say right off the bat that ORISE played a pretty important role in how that happened. So I'm an internist by training. I trained uh, in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's and also did a global health equity residency along with that training. So I worked very closely with partners and health colleagues and other, uh, other individuals working in the global health space. So I left training knowing that I really wanted to work in public health policy, global health policy and public health policy in particular. And so that led me uh, to work at the NIH when I had an opportunity to work with Dr. Tony Fauci, which if you're interested in public health policy and global health policy, there really is no better way to learn that than uh, have the opportunity to learn alongside him. And so I started out in government there and I worked at NIH for about 10 years, um, increasingly focusing on infectious disease preparedness and response. So I helped him coordinate our responses to several outbreaks, uh, including Ebola, Zika, and certainly COVID-19. That brought me to the National Security Council working on similar issues, and then to the COVID response team where I had the real privilege, honestly, of, uh, of leading some of our global vaccine donation work. Um, so that was a program led by this administration where we donated over, at that point, over 500 million doses of vaccines around the world. Uh, and uh,
1: from there to the FDA, that's amazing. what a what a trajectory and what a focus. I love your focus on global public health policy. I think that's that's really excited and obviously much needed um, to not only manage and prepare for and and execute during pandemics, but you know, other illnesses and outbreaks that we don't we don't even know about in this country right
0: yeah just not part of our daily reality Yeah,
1: no. right so how did you get I want to kind of go back to the beginning and talk about how did you get interested in a career in STEM in the sciences what what was kind of the driving force behind that
0: I love this question um because these things are are uh things that develop over time, right? And they come into focus over time. So even back in undergrad, I was uh, working at the Wistar Institute um, in a vaccine lab. And I had a very patient mentor who took me into the lab, even though I was frankly a disaster in the lab. <laughs> right? like, I was terrible, but very enthusiastic and and really wanted to learn. Um, and uh, Dr. Ertl was was just a was very generous with her time and really took, uh, took me under her wing. And I appreciate that. Um, it, she, uh, so I was working initially just on DNA vaccines for a variety of different things, but also specifically focused on HIV. Um, and this was, this was back, uh, in the nineties, in the early nineties. Um, and, uh, the promise of, DNA vaccines at the time we were just really beginning to scratch the surface and mRNA vaccines weren't even a glimmer in anyone's eyes, but I was already seeing the potential power for something that I cared a lot about global health already at that point, Um, the potential that science had to impact that. I also was there at the time when some of the first estimates of prevalence uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and around the world were coming out of UNAIDS. So it was was a stark reminder of how important that sort of work could be. And that was something that I carried through with me through all of my training uh, and just Built on those experiences through my training with more practical clinical on the ground activities. So, I, I worked, for example, I was at the University of Pennsylvania for my medical school training, and they had a partnership with um, uh, with uh, Princess Marina Hospital in Harare, Botswana. So, went over there and did clinical rotations there, and uh, you know the disease. At that point, the folks who were coming into the state hospital were typically had very, very advanced HIV and, and a lot of uh, co-infections. So uh was able to um, to pitch in, but, but also learn just so much from, from my clinical colleagues there. Um, and you carried that through the rest of my training, working in partners in the health sites um, in uh, primarily Rwanda and a little bit in Haiti.
1: Wow, so <laughs> you've worked kind of all over the world yep. um, in in your career. Um, you mentioned at the jump that um, ORISE played kind of a critical role in the trajectory of your career. Mm-hmm. You were um, an ORISE research participant at the National Institutes for Allergy and in, uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases, um, and Doctor Tony Fauci, as you said, was your mentor. Um, Talk about what you did during during your research participation program experience and what it was like to be mentored by Tony Fauci.
0: Yeah, um, so I think he's, he is uh, one of these folks who really prioritizes mentorship in their day-to-day work. Um, and I think that those are rare folks to find, particularly in at his level of leadership. Uh, but mentorship is a skill and you have to, you have to hone it. And he certainly has. So he's done this over the years, actually, where he's brought people into his office for a couple of years and just kind of says, you know, shadow me. Um, it, you, I'm going to bring you uh, to, to any any number of things that I'm working on. Uh, we'll write together. Um, you'll help prepare talks for me and, and figure and learn about the way that I communicate. Um, and so that was kind of the pitch uh, when we discussed coming on board. And uh, certainly I couldn't have even imagined the breadth of things that I would be able to do. So um, the uh, it gave the opportunity to work with him and see as he worked around the interagency, worked on critical issues related to HIV, related to influenza, but also you're at the NIH, right? right. So, and... I think there is, it's a remarkable institution where people, obviously you have the experts of the experts there, right? Um, but also people are pretty darn generous with their time uh, and willing to really break it down for you um, and it help help you come up to speed, certainly not to their level, but uh, more than you could ever hope to from the outside.
1: So talk about, I guess, some of those experiences. I, you've mentioned some in terms of preparing some talks for him and learning how he mm-hmm. communicates. Um, I know science is a very collaborative process. So I imagine at the NIH where you have scientists from across the board together, there has to be a lot of great collaboration.
0: There there really is. And a couple of, it, it's it's. It's somewhat uneven how much collaboration that there is. Um, it, so some areas are just very practiced in this and know how to reach across the NIH or across uh, scientific disciplines to get more input from the outside and really see the value of that. And some areas, you know, are more siloed. What I think was impressive over time, and particularly in the emerging infectious disease space, is that we built on the experience of collaboration. Okay. And from one outbreak to the next, folks saw the value in it and just sought that out more and more. So an example there. So um, the the probably the best model that I saw for collaboration initially was in the HIV vaccines uh, space. Okay. So we had a couple of outside extramural cooperative um, agreements with um, the uh Center for HIV, AIDS, um, uh, Vaccinology, and Immunogens. I'm going to butcher it. It's, it's the Chavis, though. Okay. Uh, and uh, they uh, they worked very, very closely with the Vaccine Research Center, which in, it was an intramural program, and also with the Department of Defense. So these folks were just bringing the best of their research expertise to this critically important problem, which is how you effectively begin to prevent HIV, vaccine, HIV infection. Um, now a vaccine is an incredibly difficult challenge there, but the knowledge that's been gained through those efforts has both advanced the ball in HIV prevention, right? But also in other infectious disease spaces. So for example, We have structural immunologists working with vaccinologists at the vaccine research center and working across with the Chavis as well. So they brought their knowledge of how to design vaccines for HIV straight to RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, which is a huge problem for neonates. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also that work kind of fed directly into our COVID vaccine work. Right. So that that model of collaborative science literally is saving millions of lives around the world right now.
1: That's amazing. And I I like the example that you just shared, because um, and again, not to get into the politics of anything, but none of that happens in a vacuum. Right. I mean, scientists didn't just wake up one day and say, here's a vaccine. (laughs) Right. It built on years and years and years of work to get to the point where you could speed along the development of the vaccine faster because of what you already knew.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so well said. Um, the investments in, in basic science research and the investments in funding the clinical trials networks that took that ball and ran with it, Right. Um, I'm obviously not that much of a sports fan because I'm butchering sports (laughs) 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 but but if you didn't have those investments in place, you would have been so much slower, so much slower and you probably would have ended up with less effective countermeasures in the end.
1: Gotcha. Um, I want to go back to talking about um, Dr. Fauci as a mentor and how um, how has that shaped you as being a mentor to other scientists?
0: Yeah, so, I will say that, um somebody showing that he's not the first mentor that I benefited from, right? Sure, uh, sure. so I've had great models for men, extraordinary models for mentorship him included throughout my career and and I'm very fortunate in that way I mentioned Dr. Hildegan Ertl earlier. Mm-hmm. um the. He, he made the time for it and he really, he's a very busy man. And when he was sitting down and focusing on a career directions conversation with you, emails were off, right? Like he was just singularly focused on you and you got to benefit from the wealth of his experience. And I speak about it in the past tense, that's that's inaccurate, right? Like I still, I still certainly consult with him. I really sure. value his opinion. Um, I came from the COVID team most recently, right? And uh, Jeff Science, who's the was the COVID coordinator when I first started there, Natalie Quillian, and the new leadership, as she's John and Lisa Barclay, they they set aside the time, right? And they asked hard questions. That it's it's one thing to be a sounding board to to offer a little bit of input here and there but to be fundamentally challenging of the way that you're thinking about future directions i think it's a skill and it's important because we can get into ruts with with our thinking about future about our future work i um i try to make time for informal mentorship and formal mentorship uh, because i think it's important to pay it forward i also just think it's a it's it's re- it's fun you know right, right. I, I enjoy chatting with people about about how they're they're looking at these issues but being, i mean honestly having these conversations is also helpful to sharpen my own thinking
1: gotcha okay that makes perfect sense um <laughs> as you were speaking i heard you um reel off a number of names of of Sorry. women in STEM. No, no, no. Yes. yes. Uh, women in STEM. And my next question was going to be, you know, what's it like being a woman in STEM um, maybe today compared to, you know, when you started, but it sounds like today, you know, in, in the world that you're working in, I mean, there are a lot of women in, in the STEM fields that you're working in. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I'm in, in it, I am frequently on panels, on uh, conference calls where uh, there is a rare male <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> there. You know?
0: So, um, and I'm not going to say that uh, that there are no challenges being a female in these spaces, but I've been very, very fortunate. Um, and uh, I think that... Uh, I encourage a broader lens on how we think about diversity in the voices that we have represented at the table. So I certainly think that gender diversity as broadly defined uh, is, is an important perspective here, um, but I also think uh, we a, a broader lens is important.
1: Awesome, okay. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about resilience. Um, mm-hmm. We obviously, as a country, have had to learn to adapt and adjust um, over the last few years. In terms of your career, are there other are times that you have had to do that um, you know, through the course of your work as you've learned more, made mistakes, made you know, maybe judgments that you know you had to adjust from that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. Look, we we work in learning organizations at at our best, right? So we should be looking to learn all the time. And if we make mistakes, then we need to figure out how to reflect on them, but also how to pick ourselves up from them. Um, I would say that I'm uh, m- small. Small missteps are made frequently, right? You forget to bring somebody uh, into a conversation that you should have gotten input from. Um, you, uh, you phrase something just slightly incorrect, uh, slightly off, Mm. just slightly off, not, not totally incorrect, but just you, you wish you had phrased it differently. And so I think it's important to a be forgiving, but also to recognize those moments and, uh, and, uh, go back and circle back with those people and note that you are going to do better for the future and then, and then really act on it. Um, I think on that, uh, not consulting with the right folks uh, issue, this is something that for o fellows, I think is particularly important because government government works in silos. And uh, when sometimes it's it's necessary, particularly for response activities, to work across those silos, to work in, in a matrixed way, that's really, really, it's a challenge because all of the processes are set up to work through the silo. Sure. So um, and you are laying on top of that the the crosswalk and figuring out who exactly you need to touch in each of those silos to to get that right is is a challenge. And also people aren't used to necessarily working across. Um, I think certainly COVID and other outbreaks before that has gotten a whole cadre of people who know how to do this well, Um, but we've all, all of us who are working in this space have had those issues along the way. So I think folks coming into government from the outside should recognize that 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 will be a challenge, especially because you're coming in as a fellow and you are going to be a a new addition onto onto a machine that's kind of working. Um, so be patient with yourself. Be uh, be open to pitch in wherever you can, um, and also be open to people saying, "Nope, we got this. Uh, let's focus your attention someplace else."
1: Gotcha. That sounds like great advice for an up and coming scientist, regardless of ORISE participation or or other, right? Hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything I, I, I do want to ask you um, about your new role since it is brand new? Do you have a vision for where you're headed, where um, the agency is headed, um, or is it still sort of trial by fire hose kind of coming, coming
0: together? <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I do. Um, and so I'll say this is a tremendous moment to be at the FDA, Um I think that the uh, folks here are doing just some remarkable work. Um, the focus on the public health mission, I, I i don't know if I can say it's never been stronger, but I can certainly say it's incredibly strong at this moment and the leadership is, is, is fantastic. Um, uh, the, the focus that I have really in, in my role seems to be coalescing into three basic buckets. So number one is uh, based on my background, I'm continuing to work in the response space. So monkeypox response a little bit on COVID and long-term preparedness work. Number two, uh, I'm directly overseeing the Office of Clinical Policy and Programs. That's a number of cross-cutting clinical policy and uh, product matters that sit in the office of the commissioner. So uh, products for rare diseases, pediatric therapeutics, um, some of the patient engagement. Uh, and then no, the and the number and combo products. I can't have to mention combo products. And then number three is some cross-cutting commissioner priorities uh, that the that Dr. Calif has laid out, um, and he's asking both me and uh, the chief scientist to help uh, help drive forward. So the chief scientist is also new in the role, a woman by the name of Dr. Namanje Bumpus, and mm-hmm. we're re- very fortunate to have her. Um, so those are things like use uh, evidence generation system, the evidence generation system, combating um, misinformation and disinformation, long term priorities that uh, the FDA has been struggling with for some time. We're looking for some concrete ways that we can drive
1: those forward. And I would assume particularly on that last point that that will hopefully help restore some faith in the public in public health. Um, I mean, I, you know, I come from a public health background, so, but you know, the, there are people questioning all the time, as you know. Um, so hopefully combating some of that misinformation disinformation will be beneficial in the future. That's
0: right, that's right, couldn't um, be more
1: important. I'm sorry, say that again?
0: I just said, couldn't be more important.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So last question for you, Dr. Marshman, what brings you joy?
0: Uh, so number one, I have to say my family, right? I know that's cheesy, but I have two, uh, budding scientists, I hope coming up to and, uh, they are, I'm a proud mama. They're the apple of my eye and, um, they bring me tremendous joy. Um, uh, number two is a real satisfaction with doing work that matters. Um, I, I wish that for everyone in their life because um, we do spend a lot of time in these chairs uh, and I certainly have no end of satisfaction in that area with the problems I've been able to take on and, and pitch in on them.
1: Awesome. That sounds great. Dr. Hillary Marshton, thank you so much for your time and for the opportunity to chat with you about your career, about your ORISE experience, um i assume um just based on our conversation you would recommend an o experience i would indeed I would indeed. <laughs> so but thank you very much for your time i greatly appreciate it i know you are very busy and i appreciate the opportunity to speak with you
0: thank
1: you so much thanks for yeah. being the invitation have a great day thank you for listening to the o feature cast To learn more about the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education, visit orise.orau.gov or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at oriseconnect. The Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education is managed by ORAU for the U.S. Department of Energy.